Welcome to Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care Podcast, a show featuring conversations with people living with cancer, caregivers, survivors, loved ones, and the bereaved. Hosted by oncology social workers, Cancer Out Loud takes a closer look at the cancer experience using the power of storytelling. This season, we're talking about maintaining hope through survivorship, coping with rare cancer diagnoses, navigating shared decision-making, coping as a caregiver, and much more. This podcast is produced by Cancer Care, the leading national organization providing free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Welcome back to another episode of Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care Podcast. My name is Sarah Paul, and I'm the Director of Clinical Programs at Cancer Care and your host. Today, we're joined by Whitney, a young adult caring for her husband diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer. Whitney, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what your life was like prior to your husband's diagnosis? Absolutely. I am a 35-year-old licensed mental health counselor in Western New York. I also am a singer and a trumpet player in a few local bands that I enjoy playing with on the weekends. I am a wife and have two dogs and a cat currently. I almost forgot that I also have been living with and dealing with Crohn's disease for the last 17 years of my life. And Elliot was my caregiver while I was ill, which wasn't always, but there were a few doozies in the last six years of our relationship where I was pretty ill and he had to really step up and make sure that I was doing okay and he would help to clean and bandage wounds. And he he really was manning the the ship in in our household while I had to kind of climb out of, of the dregs of being very ill. And so it was definitely interesting to become a caregiver myself after playing the role off and on of, of being the individual who needed some extra care here and there. Absolutely. And what were some of the, the main challenges that you faced at first after he was diagnosed? Oh, man. I mean, the main challenges we faced when he was first diagnosed, personally, I had left my previous job to pursue my doctorate. And I I remember the last time I was sick, I, I had sepsis and I was in a hospital during COVID by myself about to go in for emergency surgery. And they were telling me, hey, you might wake up with an ostomy bag. You might wake up with a lot of, you know, cuts or tubes. We don't know. We don't know what's going to happen. And I remember uh, because I was just out of my mind with sepsis at that point and on a lot of painkillers from the hospital, of course, that I 
was convinced I was probably going to die during this surgery. So I'm saying my goodbyes. And, and during saying my good my goodbyes, I thought, oh my gosh, if I don't get to live another day, what would I regret? And I decided that I would regret not getting my doctorate and that I would regret not having children. And throughout the last year or, yeah, I'd say year and a month now, that my husband's been diagnosed, I figured out that that is absolutely not what I would regret. <laughs> it would be not spending time with my husband and the people that I love here now. So I guess the the challenges we faced when he was first diagnosed and what I personally faced when we were first diagnosed was leaving the doctorate program that I had decided I just needed to complete in order for my life to feel complete as well as really that I wouldn't say the change in my position to becoming a caregiver. I think that that was a no brainer for me to just drop everything. It didn't matter what needed to be dropped. It was done. And it wasn't a lot of time after he was diagnosed that we had a turnaround from, Oh, it's probably stage three. Here's our treatment plan to a very grim call. Uh, being made to us, <laughs> very cryptic, like, oh, don't go in for radiation. We need to speak to you first. And we both had a very odd feeling. And we said, no, you can speak to us today, not Monday. It was a Thursday at that point. And we went in and that's when they told us that Elliot's cancer was definitely stage four and that it had spread, it had metastasized to his peritoneal cavity and kind of just up like up his abdominal cavity so we had a quick turnaround of here's your treatment plan to hey we're going in for emergency surgery in two days or else you're going to obstruct and die a lot quicker so <laughs> Elliot went from being the person who cheered me on and, and kept me going and cared for me to the one who now was like, had an even more serious and true threat, wasn't a septic shock type threat of serious illness and death. Um, if this wasn't taken care of immediately, and he was the one that actually ended up with an ostomy, I did not after I woke up from my surgery. So I have always kind of with Crohn's disease been prepared myself to have an ostomy eventually in my life. And instead, right now, I have actually been the person who has cared for someone who has an ostomy. Luckily, my husband had that reversed successfully for now, a few months ago. But yeah, I did a lot of caring for him in ways that I didn't think I would have to for a 31-year-old, you know, male, 32-year-old male now. But we did it. We, we pulled through so far. We did. And so, you know, there's a couple of things I want to go back to. But the first being, you know, this the sacrifices that you had to make. Of course, you said like no brainer that you would care for your husband, but it doesn't come without sacrifice. How did you cope with the change of, you know, life plans and the upheaval of all of these things that you and Elliot had planned? Oh man. I mean, you grieve them, you know, it's, it's a loss for sure. And you go through your, your own stages of, of grief when it comes to 
the, the upheaval of, of your life and your life plans, especially when it's not so much the doctorate. Yeah, that would have been nice. But the having children, which we had been trying to do prior to this and had been going through failed rounds of interuterine insemination for a few months prior to the diagnosis. I think that at first I was in survival mode and just shocked and and went through motions like a robot almost to get through and make sure that my husband um, was emotionally handling this okay. And then I would, I would be alone for just a moment and quickly lose it and, you know, grieve for my thoughts about being, you know, my, my want to be a mother or, you know, maybe where I was professionally and where I wanted to be professionally, but more so the children. And maybe someday we'll, we'll figure that out. But in a way that was, it was bittersweet in a way. It's still bitter once in a while. Like, don't get me wrong. It's not like I'm like, oh my God, I don't want a family anymore. Like, nope, totally still want one. Just not in the, the stars right now for me or for him. <laughs> And what was it like to experience the kind of the flip-flop of roles? And now it's like you're caring for each other side by side. But at first, what was that like? It was it was difficult for me because I'm used to being the sick one to be like, all right, I'll be fine. Like I'll crawl out of this, I'll get through this. But that the feeling of complete helplessness that a caregiver has when they see someone in pain or they know that this outcome might not be good is it's terrifying and it's heart-wrenching and you can't stop it it's like you are on a a merry-go-round from hell and you don't get to hop off at any point in the near future and even worse, as you're stuck on that merry-go-round from hell, you look over and your loved one is stuck on an even worse merry-go-round from hell. And you can't get over to them to pull them off of it and save them either. So it's it's a whirlwind of emotions and it's painful. It's definitely the hardest thing I have done in my entire life. Yeah, of course. And I know earlier on you mentioned, you know, that you're a licensed mental health counselor. And I wonder, do you feel like anyone in your life or your support system kind of assumed that you didn't need help because of your profession or, you know, thought that you guys would be fine and dandy? Well, the fine and dandy part because of my profession, no, but the whole, uh, you know, just, you know, think positive, it's going to be fine. And then they kind of just you know, whistle on their merry way and you're sitting there like the hell it is. It's not going to be fine. It doesn't feel fine. You know, we feel like we're drowning. It, it It's so difficult. Um, we've had plenty of people who thought, you know, everything's fine. Everything's good. Don't worry about it. Um, from some family members to, you know, just it, people like to insert their opinion. And sometimes it's to be helpful and sometimes it's because they can't stay quiet. But yeah, we, we definitely got some of that as far as 
me being a, a professional in, you know, the mental health field, I was effective at communicating the fact that we did not have this, that we were not okay. So, you know, where some people might clam up or not ask for help, I reached out and I said, I, we need help in, in anything I could. Like I knew that when other friends were in need, I would be there in the blink of an eye. And I know that they would do that for me too. And I also am very lucky to have a very close knit group of friends who are all mental health professionals. So they knew that even if I said I'm okay, that, you know, they might need to swoop in and other more quiet, less demanding ways to kind of uplift our spirits. And and they did just that. That's great. And I'm wondering, you know, you talk about, you have a really great group of close-knit friends in your support group. What was it like to try to expand your support network after Elliot's diagnosis? I'm glad you asked, Sarah, because I was lucky enough to find you, my fantastic counselor and wonderful host of this podcast, through a, again, a painful, I feel like I keep saying painful, but a painful process and and one in which I felt very failed. And I'll go into that for a quick second. When my husband got his emergency surgery, I knew that we were both going to have a really hard time. And I reached out to the hospital that my husband was going to. And I said, we need help. Like we need counselors. He needs a counselor. I need a counselor. Like we both need to explore this. This is just mind blowing at this point. And they said, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We have those services. And they gave us a name, a number. And I proceeded back and forth to play phone tag with reception for weeks. And I was beside myself. No one would give me an answer. Every social worker that came into the hospital room while my husband was recovering from that first surgery would say, can we do anything for you? And I was there nonstop saying, yes, like, where is the counselor? Where is the psychologist? You are all social workers. Where is the person to speak to about our mental health and all of this? Like, this is traumatic. Where are, where are they? Oh, we have them in this, this area of the hospital. Like we put a request in, they'll be getting a hold of you. I'm like, they're not getting a hold of us. Like this feels so urgent and no one is helping. And I felt so abandoned by my own profession in that moment that I had lost a little piece of hope for, you know, other individuals in our field, you know, in other individuals in our field, not for them. I lost hope in them and and faith in them being able to swoop in and help. So I, I reached out to my friends and I'm like, I can't believe the crap that's happening right now. And I'm so pissed. I need to figure something out. So Stupid Cancer was the group I found that uh, had, I believe that night that I had found it, had a kind of little forum discussion where Sarah, you, and Marley, I believe, one of the other fantastic social workers and counselors through Cancer Care, 
were speaking about, do you remember what you were speaking about? Yeah, I believe it was on uh, young adult caregivers. <laughs> oh, perfect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and, and I heard, you know, you, you both speak and then the you know, forum kind of opened up for all of the individuals who had attended to to speak and ask questions. And I, that's when I had spoken up and said, I am beside myself. Like, where can I find someone to speak with my husband and to speak with me? No one's getting a hold of me. And I, you know, I was probably pretty upset at that point about this. And that's when you, I believe Sarah spoke up and said, what state are you in? And I said, New York. And you're like, we can help you. We can speak to you. And a giant, you know, sigh of relief just like came out of me. And I, I was so, I was so happy to finally be able to find someone to, to let this out to that wasn't a family member that wasn't you know, personally involved in this situation, which I knew both of us so desperately needed because both of us, although hurting and having trouble, neither of us, I believe, wanted to lay the entirety of our pain or our questioning or our grieving process on anyone else, you know, that was involved in helping us, nor on each other. You know, we had to be each other's strength and motivation a lot of days. And so it was very helpful to finally, and I say finally, like I was looking for years. It took me about three weeks from beginning to end. But still, I, you know, after making calls, ugh, finally be able to talk to someone. Yeah, it was rough. I mean, and and they social workers at this hospital that my husband got surgeries at, you know, and all continue to treat him. It's a fantastic hospital and everything kind of shook out afterwards. It sounds like it was miscommunication on like the phone lines or something, but it took a while to figure out that miscommunication, which was very hard. They did give us like local resources to contact. And I contacted several, 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 several local resources, all of which in our area were either not taking new clients, wouldn't take us unless it was in person, wouldn't, you know, see anyone outside of like the immediate city area. So it 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 was a lot of calls into different places before finally ending up at cancer care. And I'm very thankful for you all. And we're thankful that you reached out too. I think, you know, this is just one piece of a, mu a bit much bigger story that we hear, this kind of inaccessibility to mental health and emotional support surrounding cancer. There would be hospitals being overloaded with cases, not enough resources, or people simply not knowing about us. You know, it's, it's pretty amazing to have people come from all over New York State to get support. So we are happy to be able to, to provide that support to you and your husband and, you know, to those living in New York and New Jersey who need counseling. It's such such an important part of the work that we do. And it being free is really just a perk. Absolutely. We didn't have to worry about insurance. And I mean, when you're going through the cancer process, and you're just constantly thinking about insurance. Will my insurance cover this? Will my insurance cover that? So having something that you didn't have to worry about your insurance covering or a copay that you have to pay was just phenomenal. I want to talk about, or I want you to be able to share 
kind of that shift from, you know, Elliot's surgery to post-surgery life and NED status and kind of like this new reality. So the team did amazing things for my husband and they, he did, oh man, so I think 10 rounds of very aggressive chemotherapy. And then he was able to respond well enough with that chemotherapy to go through radiation for a week. So an intense radiation for, for five days. And then they set him up for HIPEC surgery inside a reductive surgery. So heated interperitoneal chemotherapy is the HIPEC portion. And cytoreduction is the debulking of you know, any cancer that they can find. And then he also was able to have his ostomy reversed at that time. So he went through, it was a 10 hour surgery, some of the worst hours of my life, but some of the best hours of my life as well, because he's still here. Um, they were able to get the majority, if not all the cancer they could find out at that time. So, you know, we are thrilled. We are absolutely thrilled about how well he did and and how well everything turned out. And so are the doctors. You know, this is fantastic. It's it's they said that that's probably the the most time they could have bought him as is with what they did and how well it turned out. Um so technically right now as of a scan in June or July, he is has been deemed no evidence of disease, which seems like the new school remission, right? So they didn't see any cancer, but that doesn't mean that he's cured. And I think that's where we still are on the struggle bus a little bit with some people because they're just like, no, you had cancer. You don't anymore. And it's like, you don't understand what has you know went down in the last 13 months of our lives like just because cancer is not evident currently does not mean that it is not somehow still affecting your life and it doesn't mean it has to take over your life but it, you know it definitely still affects it and it's kind of a cloud that that hangs over you once in a while absolutely and, you know, it's a, a reminder that things, you know, aren't permanent and it's, it's scary. Uh, life's not permanent and it's scary, but Elliot is doing okay with the transition of, you know, Hey, I just got a giant death sentence to wait. Now I have to go back to work, but they told me just to live my life because I'm probably going to die in a few years, but now they're saying they bought me a few years, so now I'm transitioning back to being, you know, feeling like a, a human again, I guess. <laughs> and I feel like that back and forth is is a little confusing, not only for his body, but for his mind. Yeah, of course. I think, you know, it's it's such a drastic shift from, like you said, preparing 
you know, for whatever might come with a metastatic cancer diagnosis and then being told like, hey, like for right now, and again, the, the key word is right now, Yeah, yeah. you know, you're in a good place, live your life to right. the fullest. But that is a very confusing place to be sometimes, especially, yeah. you know, with still recovering from a very intense and long, serious surgery and transitioning back to work. I mean, we're talking about in the last, like you said, year and one month, so many things have changed. Yeah. So many things. Yeah, absolutely. And and the transition, it's been just a, a wild roller coaster ride. I just wanted to talk about no evidence of disease because I feel like it's really not talked about that much. Um, yeah. And then when it is talked about, it's painted only in like this rosy light, mm-hmm. which again, it's a positive, but it's also terrifying. It's a terrifying place to be for many people. Uh, well, absolutely. And and my husband and I talk about that often because, you know, we even have a few family members who are like, no, you're cured or like, no, you don't have cancer anymore. And it's like, you can't say that to someone who's been given a, well, maybe you are going to not have cancer again for a day or maybe it'll be 10 years, but we don't freaking know. And that's the big question mark. You don't know, but it's going to be something that continuously reminds you that, hey, you did have cancer for, gosh, every three months at least for a good long time as you get scans, as you get blood work, as you go to the doctor, every time you have an ache or pain or look at your scars, it doesn't mean, I mean, it means you survived something for now and that's amazing but it doesn't mean it didn't come along with some really difficult emotional scars that are maybe going to take an even longer time to heal than those physical scars did you know it's a trauma that is that is loss of life in front of you and it's your life if you are the caregiver or if you're the patient Mm -hmm. you know and we don't talk about that type of trauma very often I think as mental health professionals like we go through our trauma of you know has anyone hurt you has anyone done this but when it's have you been seriously ill Mm -hmm. or feared that you were going to lose your life due to illness or even worse a medical professional told you you are going to lose your life due to illness that is extremely traumatic. Your body goes through a whole completely different change that that no one understands until you've been there, right? Or, or you've seen it, or you've really learned about it for a long time. Exactly. But it, it, no evidence of disease is awesome in many, many ways. You bought yourself, you've got time. And that's all we want at the end of this, right? That's all anyone wants is time. Hopefully it's time without pain yeah, or time with someone you love, but we're all just fighting for time. It also comes with those people who are going to say, you're fine now. That's cool. Like, do you want to go, you know, skydiving or do you want to go, you know, do something completely outrageous? Cause you're fine now. Like, let's go celebrate. And it's like, no, that's not my body anymore. Right. Like it's now kind of moving into depending on the type of cancer, I'm assuming as well, or the type of surgeries or the type of, um, you know, like chronic side effects from different chemos you have and stuff. It's, it's caring for your body now, like you have a chronic 
disease. Right. You know, and maybe no longer for the moment terminal, but still chronic. Exactly. And, and not gone. Yeah. And I think that that's the missing piece for a lot of people is, you know, no evidence of disease does make that shift into chronic illness. Yeah. Um, and with that comes all, all of its own things, as you know, probably mm-hmm. better than most. And I think that it's hard because we're not, we're also not saying like you have to be, you know, depressed or not live your life with this, but there's an understanding that's really important to allow people to feel however they need to feel about mm-hmm. it. Right. Um, yeah. Which often it gets kind of lost in the talk of remission of being cancer free of being cured. And also along with it, you know, many people don't want to talk about the other stuff, you know, mm-hmm. the other side, the other possibilities because of what that brings up emotionally. But I think making room for both of these conversations is so important, especially we have a lot more people these days, at least in the last five years, being no evidence of disease than we ever have before. Which again, yeah. this is a positive thing. Absolutely. But it's also new territory for a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I watch it a lot with my husband and he's doing, I think, not saying like, oh, I'm so awesome, but like, I think because he's watched me, it's helped him figure out navigating chronic disease versus you know us just in survival mode like i'm gonna die in two years like i gotta live my life but still feel like garbage all the time because i'm on all these like terrible you know hard-hitting medications not terrible because they helped but hard-hitting like medications that are making me very ill to okay i'm not on as many medications making me ill right now but i feel like hot garbage you know three out of five days or you know three out of seven days of the week and how do i get through that and still, you know, want to keep getting up the next day because it's depressing sometimes. Yeah. You know, you're pissed at your body already because, you know, you have cancer, you've gotten cancer and now you're no evidence of disease. And there's a piece of you that's celebrating, but there's also a piece of you that might still feel really crummy and scared and anxious and, and still a little depressed because it's a whirlwind of emotion and that's totally okay. It's, it's okay to let those come in and, and just be present. Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's, you know, important to point out is that <laughs> as collected, uh, maybe I don't even sound collected, as, as calm as I sound um, currently, it wasn't like this a lot of the time. You know, I, I was a mess of a person every chance I got. I was a mess. You know, every quiet moment to myself was met with tears and exhaustion and questioning and just thinking I wasn't doing anything right. I was a mess of a person for quite a while. And rightfully so. <laughs> let's yeah. not forget. <laughs> right. Let's not forget the reason why. But right. Well, um, I, I guess that's what I was trying to get at after a hot minute. Is it's it's okay to be a mess. Like mm-hmm. we, especially as caregivers, when something like this is going on, like I wouldn't expect anyone to be completely cool, calm, and collected, and just know the right answers and know exactly what to do at every moment of this. What is something that you might tell 
a new caregiver, a new young adult caregiver who might just be entering this for the first time and is feeling completely lost and overwhelmed. I actually had the opportunity, unfortunately, had the opportunity to speak with a caregiver locally, a young adult caregiver. It was for her child. Unfortunately, her child was the uh, patient here. But I reached out and uh, immediately said, there is no playbook for this. And it's going to be the most gut-wrenching, sad, painful eye-opening experience you will ever be a part of and you will feel helpless so often there is going to be times where you have no idea what's going on around you and a lot of those times are when you're going to appointments with your loved one you know your anxiety amps up and and that's an issue because we also want to stay informed. Many of us want to stay informed, right? When it comes to your loved one's care, if you're kind of taking the reins here and you're the caregiver. So my biggest suggestion, especially for the beginning, is take notes. And if you can, record every single doctor's appointment because you're not going to remember everything said. You're not going to remember, you know, the treatment names. You're not going to remember different suggestions for, you know, other things that you can do to help your loved one feel a little bit better or other places they may suggest you go because your brain is just saying, oh my God, why is this happening? What is going on right now? And and it's not absorbing any information. Find another way to get that information down somewhere. Because as much as you want to be the you know, the shoulder to cry on, the the person to lean on, the information center, the the care center, you know, the complaint center, some of those, some of those areas take some holidays. <laughs> and usually it's the information center when you're really, really anxious. So find different ways, I guess, to retain the information that's not just your brain. I think that's an amazing suggestion because as simple as it seems to like, you know, take notes, ask questions, make sure you record stuff. It's so incredibly important because like you said, when we're under stress, when we're under anxiety, we're not hearing everything. We're not processing. And you're going to need time to go back and either read through notes or listen to what the doctor has said, you know, especially if you have big decisions to make, or, Mm -hmm. you know, you're trying to figure out the best way to cope with certain treatment side effects, and you can't remember the one thing that the doctor said to you, you know, and I think that it's in a lot of the the publications and things that we have about communicating with your medical team, this is like one of the biggest things, find a way to get that information. Yeah, you know, and so I hope that our listeners are are hearing us and taking that advice and kind of running with it, especially caregivers, because if your loved one is too sick to be 100% present, or if you are the the brain of the operation, which a lot of times that's that's what happens. You know, we need we need ways to get that information and retain it. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, mental health wise, obviously, you know, we're not superhuman right. and we can't do everything and and it's okay to admit to yourself or to someone else that maybe sometimes you don't got this 
mm-hmm. just for a minute even, <laughs> but, but give yourself a space to, to let your emotions loose at least once a week to be able to process something and, you know, not, not with the patient, not with your loved one or, you know, find a place that you feel safe, really letting all of your emotions out without worrying about, you know, am I going to hurt someone's feelings? Am I going to say something wrong? It shouldn't matter in that time that you're letting it out, but find someone who, you know, is kind of not biased, AKA a counselor. It was a cancer care. <laughs> Shameless plug. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to share about your experience or anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? You no, know, don't be afraid to reach out for help and find someone to talk to. Because this isn't just a physical issue. Mental health is going to play a huge role in what happens throughout your cancer journey for better or worse. You're absolutely right, Whitney. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care Podcast. It's been great to talk to you and listen to your story. And I know that our listeners have a lot of takeaways from this episode alone. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Cancer Out Loud, the Cancer Care Podcast. Cancer Care is the leading national nonprofit organization providing free professional support services, including resource navigation, cancer focused counseling, support groups, educational resources, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. You can visit us online at cancercare.org or call our toll-free Hope Line at 800-813-HOPE. That's 800-813-4673 to speak with a master's prepared oncology social worker.